The scripture reading today is Psalm 90, found in your Pew Bible on page 496. Page 496. Before reading scripture, let's go before the Lord with prayer. God of grace and God of glory, we humbly approach you. We are frail children of dust and feeble as frail. Do not close your grace to us in the reading of your holy word, but give us the light with your spirit to guide us in knowing what your word demands of us as your servants. All to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. We have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, our Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of God for the people of God. We're going to start a series on um, who God is, uh, talking about what are known as the attributes of God, God's nature, his character, who he is. And uh, particularly, we're going to be looking at some of those things that are very much unlike us, the, the parts of God or the, the attributes of God that are uh, maybe counterintuitive, um, because we are prone to commit um, the, the most critical error in thinking about God, which is to take myself and to just kind of amplify it, you know, turn it up to 11, right? So if I, I think of a really smart person, I just think of God being really, really smart like that. 
If I think of a really powerful person, I just think of that power on a magnitude greater than I can imagine. Yet, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And so when we think about God, we need to hear from Scripture who He is uh, to understand the ways He's not like us, um, that, we're, that we can be prone to, to thinking correctly about Him because we, we try to make God like ourselves rather than thinking of a God who is vastly different from us, not just one of us and greater. And this, this has a purpose because... The way we think about God shapes everything. Our moral lives are very much shaped by our thinking about God. We're, we're very much going to think about God, you know, maybe um, we think of someone who really kind of winks at our sins, who doesn't think so much about the things that we think uh, are not so bad, rather than hearing him say, this is what is right, this is what is wrong. Our, our worship I notice in our discussions about worship, we often think about, you know, styles of music and instruments and, and ordering and the way we do things as in the focus is on ourselves. But the heart of true worship is getting a clear vision of the God we worship, and true worship follows from that. You know, if you think of the story of the golden calf, man, people enjoyed it. It was popular. There were lots who you know, really felt spiritual, yet it was a false God. So we want to make sure that we are seeing who God is as he tells us. And this morning we're going to focus on a God who is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, you are a God. This is a God who was here before the mountains were brought forth, who ever formed the earth and the world. And as we, we think about these things, there's going to be some repetition, all these things kind of uh, work in on one another. God's um, complete knowledge of all things is connected to his eternity, right? God's um, unchangeable nature is connected with his eternity. It's all connected, and so we'll be returning to some similar thoughts because they are all connected, um, but they all find, in, in some ways, a perfection in eternal because what God is, He always has been and always will be. So for the one part of that means God has no beginning. There was no start to God. You've heard of the Big Bang, and I've never understood why so many Christians kind of oppose talking about the Big Bang because the Big Bang is evidence for a Creator. Let me explain this. There was the idea of evolution was very much based on the idea of matter being eternal, no beginning, just always existing. Therefore, there could be enough years that randomly stuff could happen. The idea was that if stuff's just here, stuff can randomly mutate, randomly change. But when there became to be evidence that there was a beginning, there was a start. That was a massive challenge to the theory of evolution because it was a beginning. It was an effect, which means there had to be a cause. 
If something started, there had to be something to start it. If there was something that began, something had to begin it. If there was a creation, something had to create it. If there was a bang, someone had to bang it. What, what, I don't know what the verb would be. But, you know, it had to be done. In other words, there was a creation, there was a start. And, and actually, scientists kind of um, resisted the implications of it. And now they're searching for ways to uh, come up with the way creation could have created itself. But nothing creates itself, not even God. The world, everything we see, everything we experience, all the creation had a beginning. It had a start. It might have been a long, long time ago, but there was a start. And that means there had to have been someone to start it. And so we ask, who created God? I don't know who's doing children's message next week. Maybe they could answer that. We were tempted to say God created God, but nothing creates itself. God is uncreated. God didn't have a beginning. There was no time when God did not exist. He has always been. He is the uncaused cause of all things. You can't just keep going back. There has to be something or someone who is before all, and it is God. And here's the thing, when God created all things, he created time, all right? So time is part of God's creation. Our temptation is to think years, 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 long way back there was God. In the same way God existed for a few billion years and then decided to create everything. That's not the way it is. Time is not something God is in. Time is something God created. Now, part of my goal is for some of us to go, whoa, my brain's hurting. That's a hard concept to think about, to realize God is so incomprehensible because God is not something we can wrap in a box and understand. There was a joke going around in the early church when people would say, what was God doing before creating the heavens and the earth? And the punchline was creating hell for the curious. You think it is about as funny as St. Augustine thought it was. St. Augustine said, quoted that, and a lot of people attribute it to him, but he actually said, you know, it's a funny joke, but it's a lousy answer. And he started thinking about it, and what he started saying was, if, if time was created, that means God is outside of time. That means There's no way to even talk about before creation. Before is a time word. It's it's talking about time. So in in a sense, there's no way to even say there there was no time before creation. So it's not as though there were thousands of years before God created everything. He just was timelessly as much as he'll be afterwards because he just is. And there is no before, before let there be light, before creation came into being. Had a discussion with Clifton earlier today, or earlier this week, about how math doesn't work there. You can't ascribe that to, to measure the immeasurable. God also has no end. The world will end. The, the, the sun will grow cold and die out and be dark. Hopefully, way, way off into the future, but everything will go cold and dim and end. And one of the sorrows of life and the sadness and, and the miseries we're afflicted with that the psalmist talks about is 
we experience loss and death and things passing, all of creation will cease. Time, like a never-ending stream, bears all its sons away. There is an end, and we know this, yet God is one, and our hope in God means that it never ends. He has no end. And the great hope is our life in Him has no end either. So eternity means that He has no time that there is will not be Him, that He will cease. And so we have this hope. And here is something difficult, well, impossible for us to imagine. We can say, but to understand it, God experiences no sequence of time. Right? We, we experience moment by moment. We can look back and remember the past. We can anticipate and hope for the future. God does neither. God doesn't have a bad memory because he has no memory. He doesn't need a memory because he's outside of time. He is present everywhere. You can't speak of past with God because he's there in this moment because he doesn't experience a succession of time because God is outside of time. That means at this very moment, the eternal God will be meeting us at this table. And for us, what is past is as present with him as this will be to us. For he is present with Abraham, making covenant. He is present in the future when Christ returns because he's outside of time. He is present in all, and nothing to him is future. Nothing to him is past. All of it for him is one. And part of what what we experience is as we commune with God in this moment, as we gather together, is eternity comes to us in this time and we taste eternity. That also means, as you think about all sorts of questions about what God knows, and think, to think that nothing is future for God. He knows all things. He, it's not like he looks at what will uh, happen on days he's yet to experience. He is already there, for he is outside of time. Let me tell you one of the things that means for us. And a question new Christians tend to ask um, is, hey, I, I, I became a believer. I trusted in Jesus, but now I've, I've fallen into this sin. Can God forgive this sin that came after I've had trust and asked him to forgive? And, and here's the thing is that, that what has saved us is a God who is suffering on the cross and even now is present in that moment, knowing every sin as present with your sin, taking it to the cross. Through eternity, he is taking every sin. So every sin is being redeemed, and it is redeemed in particular. He knows it because he's present with us. As he is suffering, he's suffering for the sins I committed last Thursday. As he's suffering, he's suffering for all the sins that we'll commit, the ones we don't even know about. And so what we see is that it's not that there's this moment of time that these sins are cleansed and now I've accumulated more and now I have to make up for these, but it's understanding that he knows them all and he's taken them all to the cross. Three points of application if you don't count that one. One, do you ever find yourself 
you've had a bad day. You're trying to run a quick errand, parking's bad somewhere, it's rainy, you just, you're hoping for a parking spot close to the front of the store, and you pray, God, please give me a parking spot. I'm not seeing any nods, let's just pretend, I don't know, that's not me, I've never done that, you know, but imagine somebody doing that, or another prayer you might consider trivial. What I I mean is, there's times we have prayers like that, and it might be that if you reflect on it and you think about it, you think, oh, that's not at all important. I mean, there's, there's St. Jude filled with children, there's war in Ukraine, there's people starving, and am I really going to pray about a headache? Am I really going to pray about um, hoping I did good on a math test? Am I really going to pray about the, what, what someone has said on Facebook that really doesn't matter? Do you ever have these thoughts where you're thinking, my needs are so trivial, yet they're so big for you? Because in that moment, that is very important for you. Well, here's the thing. If there's limits and with resources and with time, if you can only do so much, you have to prioritize, right? I mean, if you get up, you have 24 hours in a day, there's only so much work you can do. You can't do everything. You have to do the really important stuff. God's outside of time. God has more time than that is in the world. God doesn't have to prioritize. Now, there is, are things that are more important, but for God, he can get to all of them because he's not bound by time. That means whatever you're facing, whatever you're dealing with, it might seem so trivial and small, but it's weighing on you. It's important to your heavenly father. He knows the very number of hair on your head. He, a sparrow doesn't fall apart from his knowledge. If you are having a bad day and are feeling a little nervous about something, you're not distracting him from the war in Ukraine to ask him for help. You're not bothering him to continue to pray for the things that you think are insignificant because in your world, if they are significant, they matter to your loving Father, and he wants you to bring them to him. God has no priority because God has infinite resources of time. The second is this affects our understanding of justice. One of the things that we deal with is the question of evil and suffering and the question of people who seem to get away with things. I'll have to admit, the Epstein client list came out, and I'm kind of curious, but part of me also says, rich and powerful tend to get away with a lot more things than ordinary people. We see it all the time. People get away with stuff. There's a lot of things where we see there's not justice done, and yet... We're only judging by half the book. If we're looking at this world and we're saying that guy did something wrong and they hurt somebody and they're not being punished for it, if I'm looking at this world in this life, I'm only looking at the movie halfway through. I mean, it would be like stopping the movie when the hero is down, the villain seems to have won, and, you know, what is Bond going to do being trapped in here in this elaborate booby trap that's not killing him but making him suffer? 
And if you were to stop the movie right there, it would look like evil wins. But we have to look at God's eternity. God's eternity means we don't see the end of the movie until we're it with him in eternity. We don't see his final justice. We don't see his final solution to all of our suffering and evil. We don't see that. We don't stop the book before the final chapter. And if we trust that, then we see God brings justice. And we trust that he does bring justice, though it might be beyond our vision. And God's justice is eternal. There is a hell There is punishment for our sin because ultimately every sin we commit is against God. And because he is eternal, it is eternal sin. We might look at a small act, but it's an against eternal God that demands nothing less than eternal judgment and condemnation. That eternal punishment is a threat to us. For if there is no end... It is truly eternal, and it should sober us up to our view of sin that we dismiss, for God is a God of justice, and he is a God of eternity from whom none of us will escape. But the good news is he is also a God, because he is a God of eternal life, of inexhaustible joy. When my, um, my parents were house parents at Boys Ranch, um, it was a group home, 12 foster brothers, and um, it was an interesting life. Um, one day, the, the boys were doing some practical jokes, and my mom tried to get them to know, you know, just, that's enough. At, at some point, jokes don't become funny, and they all disagreed. And she tried to make the point that anything you enjoy, enough of it, it gets old. They disagreed, and she said, look, you like chocolate cake. If I was to serve chocolate cake, um, like all the time, you would get old. They refused to believe, and she said, come on now. If if you had even something you like, every day, over and over, it gets old. No, we would eat it forever, so guess what? (laughs) Guess what the dessert on the menu was going to be the next night? Chocolate cake. They were excited. Next day, chocolate cake. They were cool with it. Third day, not so much. Fourth day, not so much, but they couldn't admit that they were wrong. I believe it was the third week of chocolate cake. (laughs) The cook was already saying, mom, please, (laughs) can we make something other than chocolate cake? But the point had to be made. And eventually they were begging for anything except chocolate cake. (laughs) So something good It's still exhaustible. I don't know what you enjoy more than anything. Maybe it's a ball game. Maybe it's um, rice. Maybe it's being um, um, in in a fishing boat on the golf course. Whatever it is, you know that eventually it would lose its joy. I mean, a song I listen to eventually over and over again, I have to stop listening. A a movie, a book, anything you enjoy because it's finite. Anything in this world only has so much pleasure. And I think we tend to think of heaven as chocolate cake. We tend to think of it as this will be good, but won't I get bored? Won't I get old? God's eternal. You can't exhaust him. There's nothing that, that will ever wear out because he is infinite and eternal 
our hope is an eternal life. And if the idea of that doesn't excite you, if being with God's people, if worshiping God, if, 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 if being with Him doesn't excite you, understand who He is. Can I, can I just ask a good test for whether or not our hearts are being made ready for heaven is how much we want to worship Him now. How much time we want to be with Him in prayer and the Word. How much time we want to be with the people that we say we're going to be sharing eternity with. I mean, if I have to limit the amount of time I'm going to be with God, do I really want to spend eternity with Him? If being in His Word is boring, is my heart really being made fit for eternity? And I ask you that, the answer isn't just muscle through it. The answer is to see the beauty of a Savior who is eternal. And because He's eternal, He's able to take that eternal punishment for my sin. And He goes to the cross knowing the lousy things that shock ourselves that we do. And He suffers an infinite and eternal punishment on our behalf to bring us into this hope to this eternal life, to this new creation where this world passes away, a new one comes, and we share with Him the hope of glory and the joys that never, ever end and never, ever become boring or cold or stale or old. Now unto Him who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine be honor and glory and power forever. Amen. Would you please stand and let us state what we believe through the words of the Nicene Creed.